Welcome to a special Friday edition of the Maize and Brew podcast here on the SB Nation Network. I'm your host, Anthony Broom, and we're just going to hop right into it today. So the coronavirus pandemic has taken so many twists, so many turns along the way, especially as it pertains to the return of sports uh, in the United States. July has been big in that we've seen you know, three of the four major sports are back in action by the end of this weekend. Uh, baseball has been back for about a week or so. NHL and NBA uh, will be kicking off in the bubble this weekend. The NFL kicks off training camp this week. And, you know, it's obviously still scary and everything, but they are kicking it off. Um, but sports that really aren't necessarily capable of pulling off the bubble are football and college sports in general. And the tentative start of the college football season is about five weeks away. Uh, but there are questions everywhere. They continue to persist about how the schools and conferences are going to be able to pull this off if they can at all. Nobody seems to, there's no consensus on how this is going to happen. Smaller conferences are looking at punting football in the spring conference only schedules among power five schools is also kind of putting the group of five in a pretty terrible spot. Um, so here to help us digest this and discuss the ins and outs of a very fluid situation is good friend of the site, Matt Brown, formerly of SB Nation, publisher of the Extra Points email newsletter, uh, which covers the ins and outs of the off-field and business side of college athletics. Matt, it's so good to catch back up with you, and thanks for joining us today. It, it is my pleasure. It's, uh, I'm, I, don't, I often get invited on Michigan podcasts, uh, so it, it's great to, to hop on this one and, and kind of dig into some of this stuff. Yeah, I didn't mention it. I kind of glossed over it, but Matt is a Buckeye, but he is, he is, <laughs> he is good people and, and probably easy, easily my favorite Buckeye. So admittedly small sample size, but uh, top-notch <laughs> person and, and someone who's a good authority on all this. So, so not to go all office space uh, to start the show, but could you possibly explain what the heck it is the NCAA does and is doing here? It's a, it's a great question. And I think it's important to remember that the NCAA's real power over college football is relatively limited, right? The college football playoff is not run by the NCAA. The college football regular season schedule is not really run by the NCAA. The NCAA provides uh, a framework for unified eligibility standards. It provides a framework for uniform amateurism standards, which, you know, maybe, maybe we'll talk about a little bit later, but everything else in the, the real nuts and bolts of the season is run by the conferences. And uh, what we're finding here, I think as people are, are, are really scrambling to try and figure out what a college football season would look like, what kind of risk they're really uh, prepared to accept. I, I, you know, I think so, some of this kind of stuff here is, is a little bit of a theater to prolong the inevitable rather than really substantive policy conversations. But Mark Emmert and Indianapolis really aren't involved. And if nothing else over the last week and a half, I think this has really shown that earlier in July, some kind of congeniality or unified front among power conference leaders and, and trying to have some kind of uniform policy or schedule format or, or, or terms for making this football season work. And right now it's pretty clear it's every man for himself. And that might have some interesting political ramifications. I think, uh, you know, heading into next season or heading into how these conferences work together um, and beyond. But yeah, if you are trying to figure out, Hey, what's my schedule going to look like? Who's going to decide when I can play, how I can play, what that's going to look like. It's Kevin Warren and it's your university president and it's your athletic director a little bit. And it's your state governor and public health officials a lot bit. 
that are really going to make those decisions. Do you think the college football needs a commissioner or a czar to like oversee that? Because there's a lot, there's obviously a lot of decisions to make and um, you know, the power five, it seems that the conferences are kind of collaborating and bouncing ideas off of each other as they can. But like you said, again, it is kind of every man for himself and there is no uniformity to any of the decisions being made right now. Yeah, I, I kind of go back and forth about that because it's hard for me to imagine how that might even really work over the last, you know, 130 years or so that we've had some kind of NCAA or some kind of, of collegiate governance system. One of the, the, the key foundations of all of that has been institutional home rule. We have so many different colleges. You can just at the Division One level. We have so many different colleges and so many different areas with different missions, different budgets, um, different academic standards and missions, everything. And, and there's the, the one thing that anybody in Michigan absolutely does not want is this idea that some yokel from Auburn is going to decide how they're going to do things. Or worse yet, somebody from Liberty, right? Or, or somebody from, from, from Samford or, or something, you know? So ceding that kind of authority to some kind of czar who can navigate all of those different political and geographic and demographic battles it's hard for me to see how it works. And, and the, the, the coronavirus is really a perfect storm for like exactly the kind of problem that this really like federalist solu- uh, you know, system we have here is, is, is really ill-equipped to solve. Because for, you know, for a lot of other things, I, it kind of creates a little free market that works out okay. But for a disease that impacts so many different places differently and or where they have different political pressures – it makes it very, very difficult to have prompt, uniform decisions. And that's kind of where we have, where we're at right now. And um, folks leading from behind a little bit rather than being really proactive. Yeah. Well, the news cycle obviously can hit so rapidly and, and this podcast could obviously date itself by the end of the afternoon today as we're recording here on a Thursday. So I kind of want to get your thoughts out of the way on, the conference only schedules and what the real benefit to that was for the power five. Sure. So there, there's really been some uh, misinterpretation, I think of, of why power leagues were doing that. And first and foremost, it's not really about minimizing travel as, as several fans have astutely pointed out um, a big 10 only schedule still slept students from Lincoln to Piscataway. Um, it's the, the Big Ten, you know, as a, as a footprint of over a thousand miles. And that's true for, I believe, every single Power Five conference. The, the longest trip is, is enormous. And it would have made more sense if, you're, if your goal is just to, you know, keep kids off planes, to have Ohio State and Michigan and Michigan State play some Mac schools or play Cincinnati and, and never leave within a 300 mile radius. That would have been very doable. The reason that you're seeing these leagues push for conference-only schedules is twofold. One is to ensure a uniform testing, sanitization, and reporting protocol for everybody. You know, like, like we've talked about before, the NCAA doesn't have a mandated you have to test this often. You have to report data exactly like this. You have to have this kind of sanitization benchmark. And if we're looking for some of these out-of-conference games, the resources and the and the the capabilities that Michigan has to keep athletes safe and that standard of care is extremely different from what Eastern Michigan can provide because one has the GDP of a Caribbean country and one doesn't. Um, and so bringing in kids from Ypsilanti or kids from uh, Mount Pleasant or, or kids from Hawaii or kids from some of the smaller programs might actually be a literal health risk 
if they're not testing or sanitizing as often. And so, hey, you, you limit things to the, within a schedule, within a conference schedule, you eliminate one of those variables. You know every single team you're playing against is meeting the same minimum benchmark. And they all have a, a, a minimum amount of money uh, to provide those services. The other, the other more important thing is that it, it gives you flexibility for when games get canceled. Because you can talk to the most optimistic person in college athletics. And I got I to gotta tell you, I'm not one of those people. Uh, and they'll say, best case scenario, these schedules that are being announced are not going to be played <laughs> the way that they look right now. We're going to have Miami Marlins situations because college football, best case scenario, is not operating in a bubble. And as we just recently saw with Rutgers, kids are going to go to parties. Kids are, <laughs> you can't quarantine them. Um, you can't quarantine amateur athletes who don't have a collective bargaining agreement the same way that you can in the NBA. So there's going to be outbreaks. Games are going to get canceled. If you just have a conference schedule, you can bake in some extra weeks to potentially move those dates around and have real-time flexibility that you can't if you're juggling contracts with 130 other schools. So on paper, what everybody's doing, as at the time of this recording, three of the Power 5 conferences have announced they're doing that. The SEC is widely expected to do that this week. Um, so that just leaves the Big 12. That makes sense. It puts a gigantic strain on Group of Five conferences. Uh, and I think that's going to really change the, the financial incentives for particularly schools in the MAC to play football this year. Yeah, that's a perfect segue into the next question I have is, what do you think the financial implications would be um, for both the Power Five and the Group of Five if – you know, the group of five is already in kind of a crappy spot, but if no football is played at all this fall, uh, what do you see the implications of that for, for both of those entities? Yeah, it, it, it's actually interesting because the financial pressures are, are really different between now and if there's no football at all, or if we punt on football for a little bit. If you are a group of five school, um, moving football to the spring is actually not so bad. And not having football at all, it's bad, but it's not. It's it, it hits you in a different way th- than Michigan because, but you know, let's let's take Kent State for example, right? Max School, Kent State's a- athletic department in general is earning nine ten million dollars. You get that the, the, their actual budget is much more than that because they're bringing in money from student fees and from university support. But from what they're picking up from licensing, ticket revenue, guarantee games, you know, bowl sharing, all that stuff, it's a nine ten million bucks. So if you don't play a season. You're not missing out on that much money. Um, you can renegotiate some of the guarantee games to get those punted on, uh, you know, later on, or you're going to get some of that money through legal settlements. You're barely selling any tickets anyway. And if you play in the spring or play later on, you'll still get that $700,000 from TV. So it, it, it would definitely be bad. But if you're Kent or Eastern or Central or Ball State, the thing that was most dangerous for you right now isn't so much whether football happens, it's what happens with your university enrollment because you are making more money from student fees. You know, every student that goes to a Mac school generally has to pay a couple hundred bucks to the athletic department. That's a much bigger financial consideration. And there's a real cause to be concerned that enrollment is going to drop 10, 15% or more at some of these schools. For the Michigans and the Ohio States and the Wisconsin's of the world, not playing football is a financial catastrophe. We're looking at I think, I think Barry Alvarez of Wisconsin said that we're looking at potentially losing $100 million in revenue you know, out of a $140 million budget. And a lot of these costs for Michigan and Ohio State and Wisconsin and Penn State, they're fixed. Whether you play football or not, you still have to pay debt on your facility improvements. 
you still have to pay most of your salaries. You still have to pay for your insurance. Um, so even though you're saving some money on travel, that's a catastrophe. And, you know, some, some analysts have said, you know, it's possible some of these programs are going to cut sports. Um, that may be less likely at Ohio State or Michigan, but elsewhere in the Big Ten, if there's no football, I think that is probable. I think you're, you'll see a lot of staff members furloughed. And I, at the Big Ten level, I would expect a lot of these schools to literally go borrow money, you know, literally call up a bank or sell a bond or do something to tide over that shortfall. Because we expect it to be temporary, but it's going to be very, very, very significant. Yeah, if you still need to have some sort of money coming in to operate. So, yeah, that's that's crazy to even think about. So, taking taking everything that we just discussed into consideration, do you think it's better to – try and get a season in during the fall knowing it might and quite honestly probably might probably will get cut short and not finish or or give this a shot in the spring so this is what i would do and and i think it's easier for me to give this advice because i have no political pressure pushing me one way or the other but if i was the big 10 i would say guys this is crazy let's punt to the spring let's reevaluate in jan in in january that gives us some time one we there's a slim chance we might have a vaccine. There's a better chance that we might either have some better understanding about treatment options or about understanding the long-term effect of people who catch this virus. There's a, there's part of the mistake I think in this conversation is people tend to look at catching Corona as a binary, um, binary results. Either you catch it and you're fine or you die. Well, you're probably not going to die, but there's a lot of whole, there's a whole bunch of other outcomes that could happen between not dying and being completely fine, including potential long-term cardiovascular and, and lung system damage, um, which if you're a high-level athlete is very important. So punting lets you get a little bit more data. I talked to a couple of athletic directors and senior staffers across college football for my newsletter published on Thursday about some of the logistical challenges that come from that. And they're going to be very difficult. It's going to require some people to pull long hours and probably hiring a couple of contractors with, for event staff. It is possible. Um, for Michigan and Ohio State, it's not the, you're going to be missing a bunch of players who are going to be looking to go to the NFL if you play in the spring. So the product is not going to be as good. Like That might be a year when Wisconsin or, or Purdue or Minnesota win the Big Ten, which is not going to happen <laughs> under uh, regular circumstances. But I understand why, why – Nobody wants to do that right now. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, because if you're a university president in the Big Ten, those are the people who are ultimately making this decision. Most of them are governed by their board of regents or their directors, many of whom are either elected or politically appointed by governors. And a lot of those people are saying, we've got to have football. We've got to have football because there's going to be political blowback and there's going to be a ton of criticism if we don't have football. So you've got to do absolutely every single thing possible to do it. The presidents also realize that if they're the ones that say we're not doing football or we're moving back, that every Michigan booster, every Michigan fan, every sports radio person is going to flip out, right? And that's going to be tied to their legacy. And you look at Michael Drake, who just left Ohio State, and his, how he was perceived within the Ohio State community. Prodigious fundraiser, great medical administrator. The only thing that most people in Ohio remember him by is what happened with Urban Meyer and maybe a little bit of a kerfuffle with the band director. And Michigan's administration, who I'm assuming is, is competent and, and academically oriented, if they're perceived as the people pushing to postpone or end football, that's the only thing they're going to be remembered. And it's going to be very difficult for them to go get another 
public research institution jump. Like the example I like to give is Chuck Staben over at Idaho, who was the president when they moved down to FCS. He lost his job. And he's applied for some interim presidential gigs, and he hasn't gotten any of them because every single news report is Chuck Staben, comma, the president who oversaw Idaho's dropping FBS football, comma, it hurts you. So nobody, nobody wants to do this. But I think it is the, the, the safest for the athletes. It is the safest for your students. Um, and you are in a position, if you're a Big Ten school, with your revenue streams to borrow and, to, and to, to, to have some liquidity to solve, to, to get through this problem. I understand it's more challenging if you're Grand Valley State or, or if you're a different kind of institution, but it doesn't have to be a catastrophe. That's what I would do. I understand why they're not doing that, but that's what I would do. Yeah, I guess the question I would have on, let's just say spring football is a thing that happens. And I, I don't know when that would, would it be February to, to March or February to April, whatever it is. Let's look ahead to what does a 2021 college football season look like? Are you delaying the start to give your players a little more time to actually have an off season or, um, you know, what are the implications of a potential spring football season on a 2021 campaign? Yeah, it it would definitely blow everything to hell. (laughs) And there's, there's a lot of questions. I think it would be probably impossible to have a 12 game spring season. I think if we did a spring season, it's probably eight games conference only, a, you know, abbreviated postseason. You know, maybe maybe we don't do bowls or anything. Um, and, and I think the NCAA would have to make a bunch of waivers to make this possible. The first thing that I would probably propose is you got to increase the 85-man roster limit um, because you're going to be looking at a bunch of people who are not going to play in the spring. You have to be able to have the, the flexibility to make sure that you have enough players to safely practice if you lose 12 guys, 15 guys. So I would bump it up for two years, bump it up to 100. Uh, I would change the 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 25 man counting rule for signing recruiting classes the next two classes, especially because, you know, high school kids who are juniors right now, they're missing out on basically every evaluation opportunity and coaches are going to miss on some kids. And I I think expanding that the number of kids are allowed to take might be the only fair thing to do for kids who miss out on the entire June, the junior, maybe even their senior seasons at camp circuits. You're going to have to change that. You're probably going to have to change the APR. Um, and then waive APR penalties because it's going to be a ton of kids transferring um, in, in the next year and a half for reasons that have nothing to do with anything that, that a school did. And then you, you potentially look at the spring calendar. And honestly, these are all difficult questions. For me, this is part of the reason why I would really encourage schools to make a really hard and fast decision about fall football as soon as you can. Because if we you know, keep kicking this can down the road another three weeks, which it looks like that's what everybody seems to want to do, that's three weeks that you could be spent figuring out how to best execute in the spring that you can't do because you're praying for that tiny chance that fall is going to work out. Like these are, these are challenging issues. They're going to take time to solve. I think it would be best for administrators to start tackling them immediately. Well, the thing of like, the fact of the matter is for anyone right now that leaving anytime you leave your house to do anything is an inherent risk. And that goes, you know, a hundred, a thousand fold for athletes that might be getting pushed into action. And, and something that I kind of find interesting here is so throughout the off season, you've seen players kind of, I think find their voices quite a bit in terms of being outspoken about, you know, safety and the virus and and the social justice stuff out there. Um, Do you think, so let's say we're playing football this fall. Given the risk involved with that, do you think this might 
maybe speed up the conversation or at least bring it more to the, even more to the forefront around name, image, and likeness or what does it push it back? I, I know it's not a priority for, I know a lot of schools and governments at the moment as they're bleeding money and trying to figure out how to make this work. But where do you see that factoring into all of this? This is a fascinating subplot that I don't know if as many fans or local reporters are really considering because there's two things happening right now, right? With, with, with the conversation around schools trying to start fall football and players realizing that they're going to be picking up a medical risk that they're not going to be compensated for and that they don't really have any say in uh, talking about what level of risk they find acceptable. You know, for every other professional sport, yeah, those athletes are taking a risk. And for some of them, particularly with the women, they're not super well compensated but because they had a union. They're able to talk about, hey, this is, this is what we will and will not accept. And they had a say in that process. In college, you don't. And while that's happening, the NCAA is also going to Congress right now. They've already had two hearings asking for an antitrust exemption, asking for a federal bill to say to wipe out all of the state level name, image and likeness bills and give the NCAA powers to limit what athletes can get from their name, image and likeness. Um, and what you're seeing is not just liberal Democrats, but also some pretty conservative Republicans say, you can't possibly do that under the best of circumstances, but especially not in the backdrop of what's happening right now with Corona, um, including uh, some kind of Tea Party-like people. Lindsey Graham and Marsha Blackburn have been criticizing NCAA over this. So what I think you are going to happen, because there is going to be a federal college athletics bill passed. I don't think it's going to be before November. I do think it will be before the summer of 2021. And I would expect a big part of that beyond legislating, regulating image and likeness is going to be sweeping new athlete rights about medical care. I anticipate there's going to be some requirements across college athletics to give athletes medical care for you know, injuries or anything sustained during athletics well after they compete. Now, this is a big worry right now if you're a senior. Like, let's say you go out there right now and you play football for Michigan and you test positive for coronavirus and you miss two weeks um, and you, you catch it from somebody within the locker room and then you have diminished lung capacity and you need some follow-up procedures in 18 months for things that maybe we couldn't even foresee that corona does to anybody right now. Well, you got that because you participated in Michigan athletics. But Michigan doesn't have to pay for your health care. And you know, you're graduating right now in a huge recession. You might not be able to have insurance. That's a, that's a financial risk that you have to take now for years. And this happens to some athletes right now if they tear their ACLs their senior season or if they get CTE or they have these other issues. And so that is one area, absolutely, where I think I would anticipate the federal government to get really involved and, and make some requirements for colleges to, to rectify that. The optics for what is happening right now at the NCAA could not possibly be worse for what they're trying to accomplish in DC right now. All right. Well, it's open forum time. Uh, those are all the questions I have for you, but I want to give you a minute or however long you need. Let's hear the elevator pitch or, or just the pitch in general for the newsletter. Cause I think <laughs> it's some really great stuff and it's, it's only getting better, you know, as we, as we go along here. So I want to hear the pitch on that from your end. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll tell you what, if you listen to this podcast for this long, chances are you're interested in some of these forces that shape college athletics. You're interested in what's happening in Washington, D.C. With, with the NCAA. You're interested in all the different financial angles that shape not just college 
athletics, but higher ed in general. Um, I've been reading about that for a long time. A lot of sports outlets right now, they're struggling a little bit because there's no sports. And what extra points, their entire focus is on the stuff that's not sports, but is important for sports. So not just things that are related to Corona and NIL, but how demographic changes impact college athletic recruiting, how history in college football impacts what we see today happening right now, what we see at the K-12 level or with other higher education changes and how that impacts what we see in college athletics. So if you want to understand a little bit more about what's going on, not just for the Michigans of the world, but for the Michigan Techs and for all levels of college athletics, I think you'd love Extra Points. Extra Points publishes four days a week. Um, the, uh, you can subscribe for free and get two of those newsletters a week. There's generally one on Monday, one on Thursday and Friday. You can also be a paid subscriber, uh, which I would love because that's how I pay my bills these days. That's 7 bucks a month or 70 bucks a year, and then you get four, uh, and you get uh, an additional podcast and some stickers and some other additional benefits that come with that. Now, I can tell you over the last couple of days, uh, I've written newsletters where I interviewed some Division II athletic director personnel about what spring football would look like. I talked to a couple of uh, leading academic researchers about how college athletics fits in with land-grant missions. I've talked to the NAIA about name, image, and likeness. Um, we have a story coming out on Friday about the New, Me- New Mexico's governor trying to encourage the FBS programs in New Mexico to not play football this year. We foiled a bunch of Mike Gundy's emails um, after the OAN t-shirt situation. And, and, buddy, I just filed, like, three dozen other FOIA requests over the last couple of weeks, which I, I, from everything from coaches to apparel contracts um, to conference realignment, all of that stuff is part of what we cover. And you can find it at extrapoints.substack.com or from my Twitter account at Matt Brown EP. Yes, the FOIA king. Uh, you are as good at that as anyone uh, in, this, in this landscape. So those are always very interesting as well. So, Matt, thank you so much for your thank time. You. Like, like you said, uh, you can follow him on the Extra Points newsletter. You can follow him on Twitter at MattBrownEP. That's going to do it for us today in this segment here. You can follow me on Twitter at Anthony T. Broom. Be sure to follow the website at Maze and Brew. You can get all of our shows and podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher. Wherever you get your shows, we're there. Leave a, leave a review. Let us know what we can do better for you, and, uh, and we'll work on it. So, Matt, thank you so much for your time, and let's do it again soon. Absolutely. It's, it's my pleasure. I, I joke with everybody. I can't wait to talk to you about something a little bit less apocalyptic. You know, when, when things settle down a little bit, I'm happy to, happy to chat, but I'm, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm always happy to help Maze and Brew. Well, we'll try the less apocalyptic stuff in 2021, maybe, because I don't know. I don't know what the future is for the rest of this year. But uh, thank you so Lord much Lord. for your time, man. Yeah, you bet, man. Anytime.